There's been one mass shooting after another in America. It's become almost commonplace. Could it be that it really started with the South not giving up after the Civil War? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dig dignity of man. There have been approximately 610 mass shootings in America in 2022. And of course, a mass shooting is defined as one at which at least four people are shot, excluding the shooter. Over 600 of them. Most disturbingly, recent health research reveals that guns now are the leading cause of death for children under the age of 18. One can only imagine what the rest of the world thinks of that. Ozzy Osbourne, of all people to judge crazy, recently announced he and his family are leaving his adopted country, the U.S., to go back to the U.K., where he said it is less crazy. Think about that in his perspective. There was Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012, in which 26 mainly little kids were massacred. The Las Vegas killing of 59 in 2017. And this year alone, 19 children and two teachers were killed at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, on May 24th, as the police stood by. This happened just 10 days after 10 people were shot and killed in a supermarket in Buffalo, and the shooter at his recent trial acknowledged his motive was to kill as many black Americans as possible. As so many of us f who find this all beyond appalling and feel immensely frustrated that it all goes on, we cannot figure out why. Well, our guest today has some answers. And the motive of the Buffalo hate crime shooter actually goes to the heart of the answer as to why all this is happening. How all of America became so overburdened with what many of us see as frankly, gun nuts, that is, those who truly worship guns. Writing in the Los Angeles Times, Assistant Professor of Psychology at University of Wisconsin-Madison, Nick Buttrick points out that we have, quote, collectively more civilian-owned guns than we have citizens. Think about that, more guns than people. And sales and promotion of guns by their manufacturers continue to skyrocket. As with so many deeply troubling problems we face in the 2020s, the roots of the answer can be found in history. Buttrick's article in the LA Times was titled, Slave States Spawned Today's Gun Culture. Well, I couldn't let that go. We got to talk about that. Thank you for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive, Nick Buttrick. Uh, thank you for inviting me on. As regular listeners know, your host, i.e. me, I have often referred to the observation that America is not really and has never been one nation, though we are, of course, one country. And I've also quoted abolitionist Wendell Phillips, who, after the South was militarily defeated, <clears throat> said, maybe the South would never again leave the Union or take up arms against it. 
but it would rule from within. I think that's exactly what has happened. So today, instead of cultural values being held behind those pre-Civil War definable borders, those values have spread across the country. But before we delve into that important aspect and explanation of where we are today and the effects of that war on today's massive gun culture, let's look at the context back in 1865 when the southern nation was burned and destroyed and experienced widespread, almost unimaginable devastation. Today, people outside that culture probably have little awareness of what it was like for people there. Please, Nick, if you could please paint a picture, the fear and its unique power and influence from that time. Um, yeah, so I think the South immediately after the Civil War is really a nation that had been completely destroyed. Um, the numbers that you look at that historians have, have put together are really, really startling. So on the one hand, um, you know, with the emancipation um, and the freedom of those who had been previously enslaved, you know, the labor market is very different than it was. A lot of the ways that you could have tried to, you know, grow things are, you know, no longer available. Um, the infrastructure has been completely wrecked, right? Sherman goes around uh, burning everything. Yes. Um, and the industrial base is essentially non-existent. Um, and you pair that with uh, a returning army um, that's armed to the teeth. Mm -hmm. um, that Confederates, uh, when they were... Um, uh, when the war was over, they were allowed to bring their weapons back with them. And so you have a society which is really well-armed, probably as well-armed as any society had been up to that point in history, um, with no industry. Um, the estimate that somebody made around that time was that the value of all the weapons owned by Alabamans, um, even 20 years after the war, um, were worth more than all of the farm machinery, all the industrial machinery oh in the state which is just unfathomable. Um, and you pair that with a society that was really violent, um, that the South after the war, um, a contemporaneous estimate, had it the murder rate was about 14 times higher in the South than in the North. Um, and it's mostly white men killing each other. So you have a, a lot of death, a lot of destruction, um, and a society that had just lost a war um, that was largely fought on its own territory. Um, so yeah. it's, it's a grim, bleak place. Very angry people, well-armed, very angry people. Hmm, jeez, what could go wrong? About 800,000 mainly young white men were killed in that war. And, of course, the number of limbs lost is unknowable. Well, when the Second Amendment was written back in the 1790s, I believe all there was was muskets. But in the mid-19th century, bullet-firing guns came into being, changing everything. What do we know of the proliferation of guns in citizens' ownership and control in the post-war period? What was the reality of citizen gun ownership before the war and then after? So historians have been writing about this um, fairly intensely, especially over the last 20 or 30 years. Um, and it seems as if in the revolutionary period and afterwards, Americans actually were fairly well armed. Um, but you're right, it's mostly breech loaders, um, muskets, things of that, that nature. But the way that they treated their weapons seems to have been very different. Um, if you look at the way that guns were regulated um, and how guns were written about, um, a lot of it suggests that in the pre-war period, 
uh, guns are really thought of as tools, right? There are things for hunting. Um, There are things that you use when you're being mustered for the militia. Um, But they're not something that you would walk around with, per se. Um, There's a lot of rules about concealed carry, what you can and can't do. Um, And nobody really seemed to advertise these weapons as the sort of thing that might keep you safe. I think partially because the guns Mm -hmm. were really hard to use. Um, These are not something Mm -hmm. that's easy to load, easy to fire. Um, And so they're either something that you would use hunting or weapons of war, but they're not for personal protection per se. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the things that happens in the run-up to the Civil War is we finally get good, so to speak, at making guns. You know, previously, um, guns were really difficult to manufacture and needed to be really specialized to do it. And you wouldn't really make them at, at radical scale. And the Civil War is one of the first wars that's fought with properly mechanized uh, gun production. And so you have way more weapons being produced um, that are way higher quality, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, than than been used in, in previous conflicts. So you have a lot of guns, just a huge wash of guns um, that flow through uh, America during this period um, that are far better uh, than any gun had previously been. Uh, so it's a sort of a sea change in terms of the actual physical object um, that co-occurs with, um, mm-hmm. with the war. So, so before the war, before the uh, mechanization, and, and I must say, you know, imagine... Uh, making money as a uh, motivation to make something. What a concept. They started to really make money by, by selling these guns. But b- before the the Civil War, uh, how, how were guns seen and marketed? Um, it, it, this was a large portion of our existence that that guns were, were seen and marketed differently, but, they, but it all changed. How, how was it before the Civil War? Yeah, we think largely as sort of artisanal tools. Um, you know, a lot of, for mm-hmm. example, the big gun manufacturers, people like Colt, like Remington, um, they almost went out of business uh, before the war. Uh, mm-hmm. The only reason they were able to stay in was because they were able to sell to, to Europe uh, and to arm the conflicts there. It wasn't big business per se. These are you know things that you would go down to your local gunsmith and they would you know make you uh, mm-hmm. a rifle um, or a musket or something of that nature. And you would use it for hunting. You would use it as a tool, like you'd use a plow. Um, you see advertisements for things like, you know, sewing machines and guns on the same page because these are both things that you would use in the home. Um, and so it's something that I don't think people people clearly knew they were deadly objects, right? It wasn't that people are pretending like these were just exactly like a sickle, um, but they're very much for use in agricultural or, you know, militia things. When you get mustered, you know, you have to sort of go out um, and go on the march, Um, but not so much for, you know, you keep a a rifle under your pillow. Um, I think that wouldn't have made a whole lot of sense to people of that era. (laughs) But I I can imagine there could be, you know, varmints who were, uh, you know, attacking your crops and uh, what the heck, that's a useful tool. And, you know, if it took a little time to, to load it up and aim it, so what? You know, you can still yeah, get precisely. you can still get the uh, the uh, the groundhog or, or, or whatever. I don't know what they had out in the uh, in the West. But uh, doing the research always interesting, and how people you know I get on the show uh, decide to to write the articles is, is always is interesting, and and you've gone areas that uh, others have not. Tell us, please, about 
what you found from your research along with your colleague Jessica Mazin, or Mazin rather, at uh, Madison, about the crystallization and propagation of the beliefs occurring in the former f- slave states in the aftermath of the Civil War. How was that research conducted, given the challenges of the data being well over 100 years old? Yeah, so we started from the observation that, uh, as you and your listeners know, American gun culture is is really unique. Right? Nobody has as many weapons as we do, and almost nobody around the world treats guns in the same way that we do. Um, and so we were sort of trying to ask ourselves the question of, you know, why is it like this? You know, why are we so different from every other nation? Um, and, you know, there's potentially lots of reasons uh, why American gun culture might be, might be different from, from other places. But if you look at historically how guns have been talked about, you know, who they're for, who they're to be used against, it seemed clear to us that race was probably playing a part somehow. And so what we did is we went back and looked at the influence of uh, emancipation and reconstruction uh-huh. um, and looked to see how uh, various measures of the, uh, the impact of, of emancipation uh, might predict contemporary gun ownership. Um, and as you suggested, this is not easy to do. Um, partially it's not easy because the U.S. doesn't keep a particularly good record of who owns guns. Mm. You know, there's lots of reasons for that. Um, <laughs> And so even in order to figure out, you know, where in the country today are the areas that are most heavily armed, uh, you have to use a lot of proxies. Uh, and the proxy that we, we used for this project um, is probably the best, best validated um, in the literature. Um, it's also incredibly tragic. Um, so uh, having a gun in your house uh, makes it a much more dangerous place to be. Yes, um, yes. It doubles the likelihood that somebody will die in a violent suicide. That violent homicide, sorry, and it at least triples the likelihood that somebody in the house will die violently by suicide. Um, depending on where you're at, that number sometimes goes up um, with your comparison group to about 20 or 25 times. Wow. And so while we don't keep track of, uh, as, a, as a nation, where guns are, we do keep good track of how people die. And so what you can do is you can look at where in the country are people dying of firearm-related suicide. Um, it turns out that when you have good data on gun ownership at, at smaller levels, uh, gun ownership uh, correlates with uh, death by firearm suicide, just an astonishingly high rate. Um, it's around a correlation of 0.8 or 0.9. Um, and so what we can do then is use this as, as a proxy, um, find the, the places in the country which have the highest rates of uh, firearm suicide um, and use that to infer uh, rates of gun ownership in those places. So that's the first part. But as you're right, you know, we're going across, you know, uh, quite a long yes. bit of history. Yes. So how do we capture the impact of emancipation? And for that, we just use the U.S. Census. Um, we look at the last census that was conducted before the start of the Civil War. Um, and we can look to see um, where were the areas in the South um, that had the highest rates of enslavement. And our, our sort of our, our story goes that those areas that had the highest rates of enslavement before the war would be the parts of the country that would be uh, feeling the most stress, feeling the, the sort of the biggest change afterwards, um, after emancipation, you know, the places where reconstruction would have been the most salient. And so what we can do is look to see how these things relate. And what we find is that those areas in the South that had the highest rates of enslavement before the war are those parts of the country today which have the highest rates of gun ownership. 
Wow, interesting. So long ago, and yet maybe not so long ago. So if I hear you right, the regions that had the highest rates of enslavement today, well into the 21st century, have the highest rates of gun ownership. That's very impressive. That must have been really startling and uh, uh, kind of uh, sobering to see that when you're doing the research. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're looking at the issue of guns, why there's so many of them, how we became such a gun culture. Our guest today has done some serious research into this. He is an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Nick Buttrick. His article in the Los Angeles Times is titled, Slave States Spawned Today's Gun Culture. And, And we often, you know, look at the Civil War, but Reconstruction, ooh, that was a really big deal, and and still having the ripple effects of that go on and on and on. And it Reconstruction may have been entirely well intended. It sparked a lot of really ugly racial violence. Lincoln wanted to avoid the violence after the war, but Presidents Johnson and Jackson were clearly sympathetic to Southern nationalism and white supremacy. Very clearly, no mistaking that. As you write in your article that at that time, quote, elite white Southerners considered the empowerment of the previously enslaved population an existential threat, end of quote. And reading that, I pictured the far-right torch-bearing young white men of Charlottesville in 2017 chancing Jews will not replace us. Many white Southern males saw the empowerment of black citizens obviously as an existential threat. They didn't want to be replaced. Today, many males of the far right carry guns as a way to state their political power not just carrying guns, but stating their political power, which is kind of different. And their political power, it's, it appears to me that their political power, they feel like they're, they are threatened by that. They, again, appear to feel deeply insecure, in addition to the racist aspect, insecure about their own masculinity with the acceptance of uh, GLBTQ and feminism. Their masculine domination is threatened. Is this an example of how the slave states spawned today's gun culture, that it it morphed into all that uh, uh, feeling of of, of insecurity for white males? We think it's a a possibility. Um, So when we look around at contemporary gun culture, we spent quite a lot of time thinking about sort of what do people get out of a gun? You know, why would you want this incredibly deadly thing in your house? And we think that for a lot of people, you know, they're using guns to help them feel safe. Um, and I don't just mean necessarily safe from intrusion, safe from, from victimization, right. but sort of safe in a, in a broader psychological sense. So a gun um, helps people to stay in control of situations. It helps them belong to meaningful social groups. It helps give them uh, an identity which they can um crystallize their, you know, their sense of meaning around. Mm. And we think that, you know, for, for people who are like those people who are, who are in Charlottesville, 
you know, what they're potentially using a weapon for is to deal with, you know, the threats to their perceived place in society. I think a gun is something that helps you to act. It's something that helps you to uh, to be sort of uh, the writer of your own story, in a sense. Mm. And we think it's it's possible that this starts to get crystallized um, during uh, Reconstruction and the backlash. Uh, we've read a lot of um, contemporaneous accounts of uh, the, the white supremacist elite um, and the rhetoric uh, that they were using during um, during redemption, uh, the attack on Reconstruction. And in a lot of these places, these speeches um, will explicitly tie Southern manhood, you know, Southernness, the protection of Southern values, uh, into uh, gun ownership. Uh, and resisting the occupying, in quotes, um, northern forces um, with arms. And what we've looked at um, is we've looked at where in the country today uh, do people report feeling unsafe? Um, and how tightly does that tie to gun ownership? So where are the places where when you feel more unsafe, are you more likely to see people who are armed? Um, and it's those places as well are the places which have the highest rates of enslavement before the Civil War. So it's not just that there's people who are more armed in these places. It's that these are the places where people seem to be making the connection between a sense of safety and gun ownership. Um, and so we think it's entirely possible that the template that was set um, during redemption in the way that white elites talked about the power of the gun um, sort of got passed down intergenerationally. Uh, and sort of set the template for what we think guns can and can't do. Mm. Yeah, Southern manhood. Uh, it, it's amazing how often that that picture comes up. There have been uh, attacks against, uh, well, the, the attack on the on the gay bar, uh, that Q bar, that was, uh, and I, I think perhaps one example of it. And, and the people, these these white straight men feel so threatened by uh, uh, drag shows and things like that. It's it's a little bit bizarre. I don't know why they feel so threatened by it, but I guess they have seen, you know, they're, they want to dominate. They want to dominate. And one of the things that I discovered through the years, and I, I, I will acknowledge that when I was in the New Hampshire State Senate, I was the gun lobby's number one target for defeat. So, of course, I had to keep running, uh, for, so I did it for seven <laughs> terms. But uh, it became clear as, as, as this process went on that a big part of the gun problem is that many of the, of the gun people, the, the people who I consider you know, somewhat fanatic about it, equate freedom with gun ownership, that, that their gun ownership means freedom. They are the same thing. I don't... I don't see it that way, but but talk about this belief that you you don't have freedom unless you own a gun. Talk about please about please about that belief and its history and how it how it came to that. Yeah, so I think what we see when we look at you know why people say that they own a gun, right? Freedom is a really strong theme, and we think it sort of comes from from two places. You know, there's a, a belief that's commonly espoused that you know. You, people who own guns uh, tend to think the world is dangerous, um, and also that the institutions of society are unwilling or unable to protect them. 
and if you have these two beliefs, you know, mm. the world is dangerous and you've got to fend for yourself, you know, that society won't be there for you. Uh-huh. Um, then I think it, it doesn't seem entirely crazy to say, well, you've got to take your own security into your own hands. You have to, to arm yourself. And so you might then ask, you know, who is it in society who thinks that the government is unwilling or unable to protect them, who sees uh, danger in the world? And, you know, I think those are the places where we would expect to see uh, stronger gun ownership. Um, and, you know, protect you from what? I think it's a really interesting question. You know, is it just protect you from, you know, from crime or is it protect you from other sorts of threats to your status? And that's something that we're actually we're researching right now, figuring out what sorts of threats, both real and symbolic, uh, might be the most motivating. Threats, yes. People feeling feeling threatened by, by that and uh, having to uh, have that to, to defend themselves in the uh, – the belief that uh, you know in individualism, it's 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 really a myth, but a lot of pe- people uh, just uh, believe that and accept it. And I'm curious about, I mean, today the NRA is seen, I think, correctly as a big part of the problem. I mean, they they uh, it seems like they they represent the gun manufacturers, but, but there was an internal coup in the National Rifle Association in 1979, I believe it was, which was largely about, up until then, the NRA had been about re- promoting responsible gun ownership. I, I wonder if there's, uh, if one could point to a Confederate mindset taking over back then, or what the 1979 uh, NRA coup was all about. Was it that the gun manufacturers saw the NRA as a way to create a much larger and more profitable market. What, what's what's your sense of that? I don't know if your research looked into that. Uh, my my research hasn't, but there's really lovely work from uh, Adam Winkler and from Matthew Lacombe who have studied the evolution of the NRA. And one of the things that it seems to be the case, and I won't speak for them, of course, um, mm-hmm. is that there's been a very large decline in the population in the U.S. that hunts. Um, there's much less hunting than there uh, was in the uh, 1970s. Sure. Yeah. By, by some estimates, it's it's halved and maybe more at this point. And so there does seem to have been a move by gun manufacturers uh, to de-emphasize advertising and the production of weapons for hunting. Um, and so if you have uh, fewer hunters, you're selling fewer hunting rifles, uh, and you wish to stay in business, mm-hmm. you know, capitalism suggests you should be pivoting. And so you can see very clearly in just the advertisements in NRA publications, uh, the decline of hunting-related ads and the increase in protection-related ads. You know, the idea that this gun is something that will protect you, that will keep you safe, that's about your masculinity, um, tracking fairly tightly with uh, the decline in registered hunters, people who are getting hunting permits, uh, and people who are saying that they hunt in, in various national surveys. So I think that economics may be playing a bit of a part here um, as well. <laughs> I've heard that song, Money Changes Everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if your market dries up, you create a new market. There's been a lot of that in so many different ways. And so, a lot of us of my age especially remember back in the late 60s, the Black Panther Party was armed to the teeth. It shocked uh, many in the nation. They were really, uh, a lot of the, frankly, white people were were terrified. Armed black men? Whoa! What could happen then? 
never mind that a lot of white men had a heck of a lot of guns at the time, but the fact that these were you know, active political people, uh, it, it upset a great deal of people. But, I mean, let's face it, leading up to the late 60s and the creation of the Black Panther Party, uh, there was a long, long history of racist violence against black citizens throughout the 20th century. I have no idea how many lynchings there were, and you know they didn't get prosecuted. There were police murders on a fairly regular basis. of, And this armed resistance by the Black Panther Party, which came should have come as no surprise, created a backlash. Interesting how backlashes keep on happening in this history of guns. But it, that created a backlash of more police violence and murders like that of Fred Hampton. Uh, which was really astounding. They just uh, went into his apartment and just shot the place up. Uh, the white power structure of California Governor Ronald Reagan considered armed Black Panthers as something that had to be violently repressed, even though one could understand their anger. I mean, they've been targets and had no justice. After the decades of gun violence against Blacks, how is it that there was not a growth of gun culture among blacks after this period? I think in some sense, uh, you could argue that there there was. You know, if you look at the way that the Panthers talked about their weapons, you know, it, the same sort of themes come to the fore. You know, that you have a, a government that's unwilling or under, uninterested in keeping you safe. You know, the world is a dangerous place uh, for you and your community, and so you need to go and arm yourself. Um, I think the other part of your question, which is why do we not see more uh, black gun ownership, I think also speaks to the power of laws and regulation. One of the things that uh, Ronald Reagan, literally Ronald Reagan, uh, did in response to the the Panthers uh, was to sign the Mulford Act, which is one of the more sweeping gun control acts that's been passed in the U.S. over the past 40, 50 years. Um, And so when faced with uh, a population that is armed that you wish not to be armed. Um, society seems like, or at least Republican government, uh, seems like it can step in, uh, so to speak, uh, and repress uh, that power. What, well, tell us about, sorry to interrupt, but what was that act? I had not heard of that. So the Mulford Act um, spends a lot of time restricting uh, who can and can't own weapons. Um, I think the full details of it are a little complicated, but the intent was to disarm the Panthers uh, and to uh, more tightly control uh, who can and can't own weapons. Mm. I wonder, uh, boy, there, there we, we do have various rights in, in the Constitution. I wonder how uh, how that went. And, and, and today, you know, a lot of people uh, own guns. And what are the things that we've heard so much that, well, it's not the guns, it's the mental health. I, I noticed that uh, the mayor of New York recently uh, s- decided he's got to sweep the streets of, of people with mental health issues, emotional health issues. What about that, that old fallback position? It's, it's the mental health, it's not the guns. You've no doubt heard that quite a bit. What are your comments on that? Um, so I think, you know, one of the things that it can be useful in, in, in questions like that is to look beyond the U.S. You know, 
and to think about how uh, things look like in other places. You know, and I think you know the we, we have mental health struggles in this country. I oh, think yeah. lots of other places also have mental health struggles. I don't think we're unique mm. uh, in the sense uh, sort of the stresses that we put on on people. And mm. yet we are the only country um, that reliably has mass shooting events. Um, and so I think if it was just purely about the mental health, you'd either have to assume that Americans are uniquely crazy, which mm. doesn't seem to track with my experience. Um, or that, you know, there, there's another factor. And I think you can point to the fact that America is just way more armed than anybody else is. You know, we have more than one gun for every person. And so, yeah, I think it, it's much, much easier to point to the availability of weapons um, than it is to anything else. And in fact, you know, other researchers uh, have, have looked at this and you know, they find that you know, the parts of the country that are more armed are the parts of the country where these things are more likely to happen. So it's not just that... Um, you know, we have mental health crises, which is that when you have a lot of weapons, it's much, much easier uh, to kill people. Mm. Yeah, what could go wrong? A, a uh, deeply disturbed, very angry person having access to any and all guns. Gosh, what could possibly go wrong? Uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about the roots of our gun problem. Our guest today is... Uh, Professor uh, Nick Buttrick, he's a uh, assistant professor of psychology at University of Wisconsin-Madison, lovely town, great campus, uh, and his article in the uh, LA Times is titled, Slave States Spawn Today's Gun Culture. And one of the things that we touched on briefly was, you know, kids, the highest, more, the biggest threat to kids these days. Just amazingly, I never thought this would be true. Is guns? They they're more of a threat. Kids are more of a threat. Uh, face more of a threat from guns than anything else. It's not been allowed to be studied as a public health problem. Now, if something is killing a heck of a lot of Americans, one would think, gosh, maybe you know this is a public health issue. People are dying. You know, if, if you're dead, you don't have public health. Uh, what what about the the impossibility what, uh, of looking into uh, the gun culture as a public health problem. What what, is, what what has happened with that? Why hasn't it happened? So, yeah, historically, there was you know there were blocks literally put in Congress um, mm. that were preventing uh, federally financed uh, organizations from getting money from the government uh, to study. Uh, gun ownership as a public health issue. Mm -hmm. So NIH, NSF um, were explicitly uh, banned from doing this. These blocks have been lifted, and there's actually now more research that's coming out looking at uh, gun ownership as a public health uh, issue. And so it's only been the last couple of years that um, that funding has been made available. So it's still very early in, in the process, but there are a number of researchers around the country um, who have been studying this with private funds um, uh -huh. in ways, <laughs> uh, looking at how to address this question. You know, even something simple like how do you convince responsible gun owners to lock their guns up, right, to make it harder for people to get them uh, so that it's uh, harder for people to do things like commit suicide. Um, and that work is, it's early stages, but I think there's some really important work that's going to come out of it over the next couple of years. Oh, that's good to hear because... Uh... 
yeah, I know they're, they, they, they haven't, they're in powerful forces that haven't wanted to look into this. And the political power of the gun lobby is, uh, is, is quite impressive. Now, they don't wear the uh, gray uniforms of the old Confederacy, but it seems like uh, that, that portion, that, that, that part of our American culture is uh, remarkably powerful. Probably, you know, when, when I was in the state Senate, all polls showed that the vast majority of people wanted gun safety laws, gun safety laws that actually work, and that most gun owners are responsible and do try to keep at least loaded weapons out of the hands of, of children. Uh, but uh, the, the, the power of of the gun lobby and the arguments against doing anything. I, I mean, we have all kinds of laws and regulations that, I mean, when it comes to driving a car, you're not supposed to go through a red light, for example. Do people take that as, oh my goodness, they're not allowing me to go through a red light, that means they're gonna take away my car. What That, that kind of, you know, slippery slope argument, I just, they, they, they don't. Even the the responsible gun owners seem to resist any kind of uh, 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 reasonable regulations. I mean, a waiting period. What the heck is wrong with a waiting period? Why, why would somebody be in such a hurry to buy a, a, a gun? I guess there's a lot of questions in there. If we, if we could go respond to that, Nick. Thanks. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And I think that you're right that there is broad agreement among. All sorts of Americans that you know, gun regulation should be stronger than it is, um, and that's the, the question to why it's not. I think you know you're right that there's powerful lobbying organizations who make it a single issue. Um, I'm sure that you know I don't have to tell you uh, how these uh, lobbying uh, issues might might work. I think one of the things that makes gun ownership a little bit different than car ownership is the way that we've imbued guns with symbolism. Um, mm. I think that the, the symbolism of cars, right, in the U.S., we, we take our cars very seriously. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, like, you know the, the idea of the open road is it's really powerful. But I think we've made the gun into an almost totemic object, right? It's something that is protection. And if you're going to take people's protection away, you know, that, that's mm. powerful. Right? That, that's something which you don't do lightly. And so thinking about this not just as, you know, an object that fires bullets, but as an object which creates an, an aura of safety, I think helps helps me at least to try to get a, a handle on, you know, why is it that this thing is so hard to regulate? Because you're not just regulating an object that shoots bullets, you're trying to regulate, you know, something which for some people, you know, cuts to the very heart of who they are mm-hmm. um, and what they can do for themselves, their family and for others. And you know, those are, those are difficult, uh, difficult areas to walk through. And the idea of sharing power of of uh, you know every citizen having equal rights uh, doesn't always uh, sell with certain parts of the population. And I'm thinking of uh, the, the 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 old Southern you know male dominated uh, you know belief. And and Jennifer Carlson, who's a sociologist at the University of Arizona uh, and author of Citizen Protectors. The, uh, the everyday politics of guns in an age of decline. 
See, I think that's that's part of the thing is the age of decline. It scares a lot of people. People don't want to be in decline. And a, a large part of her thesis is that the decline of the breadwinner role for men. I, I'm old enough to remember when, you know, in the 50s when we had a middle class. We really did, young people. We actually had a middle class. Uh, that the breadwinner role has 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 gone pretty much and there's a lot of fear about that so uh the purchase of guns raises perhaps aspirationally raises the male status at home and in society to be the protector so without their guns uh, some of these men are you know maybe they're just another office worker or truck driver or clerk but it provides some sort of uh dominant role where that is so much threatened and you know white men dominated the south let's face it the the, the south pre-civil war and largely after the civil war and i don't even know about today uh you know white males were the uh, dominant and controlling force comments please yeah. So I think you know, people want to feel that their lives are meaningful. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Feeling that your life is a meaningful thing is, you know, some psychologists argue it's one of the, the two core things that we do as people is, is seek meaning. And I think the, the work that, that Dr. Carlson does is, is really amazing. And she points to the ways in which, you know, if you can't sort of tell yourself a story about how your life is meaningful in some ways, you look for others. And so, you know, previously you staked the, the meaningfulness of your life on your ability to, mm. you know, to be a breadwinner, to be somebody who provides for your family. And if that's threatened, well, you still need to feel like your life is meaningful. And so if you can find that sense of meaning in providing for your family in other ways, you know, it doesn't seem totally outlandish to think that people might jump at that. So, you know, instead of being a breadwinner, you know, now you're somebody who's keeping your family safe. And what could be more meaningful than that? You know, being the person who protects yourself, who protects your community. Um, and so, you know, when you have this object that provides that symbolism, provides that aura of, of protection, you know, you, you use that. You use that to sort of create an identity for yourself, which puts you at the center of, uh, of leading a meaningful life. Um, and so I think you don't even necessarily need some of the, the, the questions about exactly where and why this this was created. I think people are seeing this object, seeing the the story that we've constructed about it, uh, and they're using it to try to impose meaning on their life, let alone dominance. Mm. And certainly, in in the old South, uh, there was you know no question that 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 white Christian males were uh, the dominant force. And and nowadays there is a, a bit of threat in uh, to that and the you know the idea that uh, they can't uh, dominate and control and there's been many many wars have been started by saying it's the other there's the threat of the other and we saw in the uh, TV commercials this very uh, year 2022 for the for uh, uh, elections. The fear of crime, ginning up the fear of crime. And there was a subtext in there about these are inner city people. It's those others. you got to protect our white culture from the others. That is, it, it seems to me, that's still a powerful influence of the old Confederate uh, culture. And in the, in the postmortem of the 2016 election, it was determined that Trump's real strength did come from 
people who live in low-density uh, regions with the lower population states where it wasn't so densely populated. And I think that's kind of interesting. The 19th century Southern culture was largely low density, I believe. It was agricultural as well, like the low density areas now, which are having a real hard time and they really feel threatened by that. Your research found that that more than that factor, historical rates of slavery predict gun ownership, your words. That is curious. I wonder if you could say more. Does that indicate that the Southern beliefs have effectively migrated out of and beyond the South, as uh, Wendell Phillips predicted so uh, presciently? And, uh, you know, it was all behind the Mason-Dixon line way back then. But, but now that those values have, have uh, infiltrated the entire country. So it's, it's not so much the low-density agricultural areas. What are your thoughts on all that? Yeah, I, I think that what we find in our work is, you know, we know that there's lots of people who own guns outside of the South. Um, yes. And so <laughs> we've been trying to sort of answer that question, you know, how, do, how did the broader American gun culture uh, move? And one of the ways that we've looked at it um, is by trying to get a handle on uh, social relations. So uh, what we've done is we've taken Facebook um, and we've looked at how Facebook friendships uh, are assorted throughout the country. Oh. And if you look at the places in the north, outside of the south, which have the strongest uh, social ties uh, to places in the south, you know, where you have the highest density of friendships, you know, these are probably places in the north which have right, strong social connections to the south. Maybe there's family relationships. Maybe people migrated from the south to the north. Uh, it's definitely tracking some sort of, uh, of ties. Um, those parts in the north where the Facebook friendship, uh, there's more uh, connection to the south, um, those are the places which have in the north uh, wow. the most guns uh, and where the connection between feeling unsafe and owning a gun is the strongest. So we think that you know, it might have migrated quite literally. You know, Americans mm. used to move around a whole lot. Um, when you move, you don't leave your family completely behind. Right. You, know, you sort of still keep ties. And right. so it's these places which we think that were nexuses for uh, Southern migration um, might have been the places which seeded gun culture, uh, contemporary American gun culture throughout throughout the nation. I also want to double back really quickly. Sure, um, you were talking about the ways in which you know, a lot of gun ownership is motivated by a fear of the other. Yes. And, you know, that the idea that the other is often coded as black. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So one of my uh, my colleagues, uh, Gerald Higginbotham, has these really lovely set of studies um, where he shows that um, uh, white gun owners, especially racist white gun owners, explicitly racist white gun owners, when you tell them that um, black people are starting to become armed, are arming themselves more frequently, um, all of a sudden, they, like Ronald Reagan back in the era of the Panthers, um, they start to become more in favor of increased gun control and increased gun regulation. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's, it's very much about a fear of black political power um, and black power more generally, which seems to be motivating some white gun ownership. And we think this is a direct tie back to where we think gun ownership and modern gun culture was, was crystallized back in Reconstruction which there was, we think, a, uh, a response to the threat of black power uh, and black mm -hmm. armament. So the, the, the threat of 
it wasn't called black power back then in the post-war period, but the the way any kind of black power, black political power in Reconstruction was addressed was, you know, white sheets and night riders and things like that. And that was a way to address black power by by terror, let's face it, and and it's fascinating about that that white people racists are more in favor of gun control when it's controlling the guns of those others those people in the city the crime crime control and that you know that's been a uh, i guess a dog whistle is what people call it these days uh, uh to to support uh, more ownership of gun control keeping those people in their place. If you just tuned into this show, Bert Cohen here, the name of it is Keeping Democracy Alive, and uh, guns are a big part of the problem in the United States these days. Our guest today talking about the roots of our gun culture. Why? Why there's so many guns? Why there's this worship of guns? Our guest today is uh, Nick Buttrick, uh, Assistant Professor of Psychology at uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he's got an article titled Slave States Spawned Today's Gun Culture. And talk about Facebook. I I mentioned uh, promoting this upcoming show on my Facebook page, and somebody named David Fetter wrote, yes, the successionists took over. They won. They've been biding their time for over a century and a half so they could do what they originally planned to do namely turn the entire country into, and these are his words, an autocratic hellscape, not just the parts black and brown people live in. And then he goes on to say, we have to beat them, like by force of arms, and we have to root them all out, a thing our ancestors failed to do. Now, I have a problem with that approach. I I, I welcome your response, Nick. Um, I, Whenever I see sort of secessionist rhetoric of, of any sort, it, it sort of makes me worry. And the idea that there's, you know, an, an other out there whom we have to crush in order to create, you know, the, the world of our dreams, uh, that yes. feels very scary to me, um, you know, regardless of where that rhetoric is coming from. Uh, and so I think you know, we, we can argue about where gun culture comes from, you know, and I think uh, what it what it leads to. But the idea of, you know, going back in and, and re-crushing the South doesn't seem like the way that I would go about doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it didn't work then. And, and as noted, they were defeated militarily. But my goodness, they did not give up. They were really, it, it, it seemed to, in many ways, exacerbate the problem and, and not at all. Uh, yeah, again, you can crush them militarily, but pff, so what? They go on and on and on. And there was some positive there were some positive steps taken in a relatively recent history. Bill Clinton, who I can criticize for a whole bunch of things, but he did sign the assault weapons ban in nineteen ninety four. And the data I believe, you probably looked at a heck of a lot more than I have, shows that it worked. It was allowed to expire in 2004, and guess what? When that happened, more gun violence resulted. In 2012, there was that massacre of children at the Sandy Hook Elementary School. And it, that, if that didn't affect the culture, if that didn't affect you know, the, the, the 
political strength of, hey, let's do something about all this gun violence, that didn't affect it. Will anything? Do you see any signs of change in popular attitude toward guns? Or is the Southern culture attitude as dominant as ever? Will it be always so? Or do you see any movement at all on, on this? I mean, if the 2012 Sandy Hook thing didn't do it, what the heck will? Anything? Yeah, I, I think it, it's really a complicated question. Um, and you know, I think that there are some signs that things may be changing. I think you see organizations like Every Town, um, other sorts of gun control uh, groups that have sprung up in the past, you know, five, 10, 15 years, um, which seem to be making some inroads in some places. Um, I think we also see that the NRA as an organizing force seems to be weaker than it has been in a generation. Yes. And so I think some of the political wins are certainly changing, but at the same time, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, we had record rates of gun ownership and gun buying, you know, people, uh, when the pandemic was starting, uh, rushed out to get more guns, more ammunition. Interesting. And so I think there's certainly still quite a large part of our country, um, for whom a gun is something that you use to fight pandemics, right. To, to sort of Mm. keep yourself psychologically whole. Uh, and so I think there's certainly signs that some of the political winds may be changing. And, you know, if you see that as laws change, so too do attitudes, you know, potentially you might see a bit of a resetting. Um, I look often um, to the case of Australia, um, which in the early 90s had a gun culture, which looks pretty similar to the way that uh, the American gun culture was built, um, very much based on mm-hmm. the guns keep you safe, guns protect you from from danger, um, there's certainly a racialized element there as well. Mm-hmm. And when they were faced with their large mass shooting, uh, the Port Arthur massacre uh, in Tasmania, um, they changed their gun laws um, and they cracked down heavily on gun ownership. Uh, they did a big gun buyback. They banned certain sorts of, of guns. And within about 10 years, the attitude towards what a gun is and can do seems to have changed. Um, and so mm-hmm. you have people who grow up uh, learning certain things about what guns can and can't do. Um, it, it changes what they think about them. And as we have entire you know, generations of school children who have to do active shooter drills, oh, yeah. who are mm. uh, born into a world that is dangerous and where they see that guns are the things that make it dangerous, you know, in some sense, it may be doing quite a bit to, to dent uh, the mythology of what guns uh, allow somebody to do. Uh, but this, of course, is just pure speculation. It's something that we're trying to keep tabs on, but it's, it's as you might imagine, uh, difficult to study. Interesting. Uh, that, that, that's good to hear that, yeah, of course, the kids are scared. And, I mean, the idea of having to do the, uh, you know, uh, exercises to protect themselves is just, it's incredibly shocking. Well, where does your research go from here? I'm 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 fascinated by by this by your work, and uh, you've done a bunch of research so far. Where do you go from here? One of the things that we're really starting to to think a lot more about is trying to get a, a really much better sense from the inside of of gun owners. You know what what they think about their weapons, and what we can do to better understand the really rich um, sort of set of associations that come with. One of the lovely things about being in Wisconsin is that it's one of the few parts of the country that still has a hunting culture. 
And so we can look at, you know, the ways in which hunting cultures and, you know, cultures that see guns as the sort of thing that protects you, how they rub up against each other um, and how they conflict and how they, they go together. Um, it's also a state in which we have uh, an urban area, we have rural areas. We can look at the ways that uh-huh. gun ownership differs um, across these places, and how people imagine what gun ownership looks like. And ultimately, I think we're, we're trying to figure out how to get people to get a better sense of the dangers that come with a gun, you know, to really understand that bringing this into your house is an act which you shouldn't do lightly hmm. um, because they are so dangerous objectively. And so looking at ways at better communicating the risks that come with having such a deadly object um, perched uh, near your family. Um, and so we'll see over the next couple of years whether we can sort of get a better a better sense of this. But that's one of the, the major directions that our research is going. Well, one thing is clear is that uh, political change does never happen overnight. It takes a long time. Uh, culture changes before politics does. And uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of good to hear that there may be some indications, some uh, quantifiable indications that uh, maybe some changes are happening with regard to uh, the worship of guns by, by so many people. Hey, thank you so much for being with us. Very informative, Nick Buttrick. I, I really appreciate that, and uh, I look forward to seeing more of your uh, research in the future. Thank you so much for being with yeah. us and keeping democracy alive. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Uh, the conversation was a pleasure. <laughs> If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thank you. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thank you.